Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Grab your Bibles. We are in a study of the book of John. Turn to John 14. Um, there's going to be ushers coming up and down the rows. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Uh, we would love to get a copy of God's words in front of you so you're just not hearing it, but you're seeing it for yourself. Um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please keep that as a gift from us. This, uh, this morning's message is entitled, Troubled Hearts. Anybody in here have a troubled heart? Oh, yeah. I would think that most people in this room have things that are troubling their hearts. There are people in this room that, um, quite honestly, uh, you are, you're imprisoned by worry and anxiety and fear. And for some, it is a constant dread that you wake up with every morning that you cannot shake, that impacts daily activities and daily life. For others in the room, it just kind of comes at you in waves and sometimes by surprise like a Thursday morning snowstorm, right? <laughs> but all of us deal with troubled hearts. One of the problems that I have whenever I preach on anxiety, and I've actually preached on anxiety several times in the 13 years uh, in the life of this church. The reason I preach on it so much is because it's mentioned all over Scripture. It's a constant topic that Scripture is addressing. One of the um, blowbacks of having to teach on anxiety is people are always like, why are you teaching on anxiety? Now all you've done is made me anxious about my anxiety. You're not helping. And uh, I would just say this morning as we look at this topic, let's just be real. If, if we can't take the Bible and apply it to the real issues in our heart, what's the point? And like it's easy to take the Bible and critique what's going on out there in culture and different things, but the troubled hearts, the worries, the anxiety, and the fears, they're gripping a lot of hearts, and they're gripping a lot of hearts of people in the church. So this is what we're going to be looking at today, John 14. I should say before we start, I'm only going to be in John 14, 1 through 6. We're only getting six verses into John 14 because some of you are going to be half hour into this and I'm still in verse 1 and anxiety is going to be all over you. Like, please, he's never going to let us leave. I'll get you out of here on time. John 14, 1 through 6. Let me read our passage. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the, the context of the passage that we're looking at today, John 14. John's an interesting book. He, he leaves no question as to why he wrote his gospel. He says the purpose of his book is that you might believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is arguing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is arguing that he is your Savior, that he is the Christ. And one of the interesting things about John's book is by the time we get into chapter 14, actually even last week in chapter 13, we were looking at the Last Supper. So almost half of John's gospel aimed at convincing you that Jesus is the Christ is focused on the last 18 hours of Jesus' life and then his death and his resurrection. So as we open to John 14, what we're looking at is some of Jesus' last words, last instruction to his disciples. He's probably within two or three hours of being arrested, and he's probably 15 to 18 hours away from hanging on a cross. So do you think as he instructs his 
disciples, there's a little bit of urgency to the things that he says. I, I would ask this, even as Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, do you think maybe Jesus had a troubled heart as he said those words? Knowing what was coming? For sure, I think that's true. In Matthew 26, 37, Matthew says that Jesus in the garden, just after he says these words, he's sorrowful and troubled. Luke says that Jesus in the garden, he's in agony. He's sweating drops of blood. I, I think Jesus knew what it was like to have a troubled heart. How about his disciples? You think their hearts were troubled? They've left their businesses, they've left their homes, they've left their families, they've been following this rabbi that they believe is a Messiah, they've been following him for over three years. They've seen incredible miracles, they've seen the crowds rally, want to make Jesus king, and now they are witnessing a, a, a turning of the public tide. So, so what is their life going to look like if Jesus is going to leave? What are they going to do? It would seem to make sense that if Jesus' life is in danger, Jesus has warned the disciples that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be persecuted and murdered. The disciples knew that go to Judea was problematic, not just for Jesus, but for them. Earlier, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a passage when Connor preached. He's like, well, we might as well just go and die with him as well if he's bent on going to Jerusalem. So they're fearful for their lives. They're fearful for their future. They're going to lose their best friend i got to argue that the disciples had troubled hearts. In Luke 22, verse 45, we find this interesting verse. It says, And when he arose from prayer, speaking of Jesus praying in the garden, he came to his disciples and he found them, hear this, sleeping for sorrow. Sleeping for sorrow. Another translation says, worn out by grief. In essence, when Jesus goes and prays, just a couple hours after he says these words to the disciples, uh, let not your hearts be troubled, he finds the disciples, they have cried themselves to sleep. Yeah, I think the disciples had some troubled hearts. And interesting, if you were to consider what they were fearful of, these weren't imaginary, made-up fears and anxieties and worries. Everything that the disciples feared was about to come true. Their hearts were troubled. What's troubling our hearts in the room today? Myriad of issues. Hey, welcome to 2024, election year. Fired up, right? Anxiety. World strife. You see what's going on in Gaza. You see what's going on in Ukraine. Feels like very soon we're going to wake up to issues in Taiwan. We've got civil unrest in our cities. We've got problems at our borders. We've got a broken democratic, democratic process. We've got inflation, the economy. When did a Happy Meal cost 12 bucks? When did that happen? Like, I don't understand. Moral decay in our country. We're worried about our schools. Every time I turn on the news, we got this whole new thing. I don't even understand it all. Our artificial intelligence, like what is going on there? What's going on in our medical community? Fox News this week, here's the headline. Huge sunspots could burst and fling solar flare directly at Earth. Thank you, Fox News. Didn't know I had to worry about that. Now I got solar flares. Are we safe? Since we were here last week, there's been a shooting at a school or at a church in Houston. There's been a shooting at a, you know, at a Super Bowl celebration party in Kansas City. There's a lot of things going on in our world that can lead to fear, lead to anxiety. Maybe closer to home, how are our kids doing? 
Are they safe? Will they get hurt? Are they progressing? Are they happy? Do they like me? Do they respect me? How about our kids? Personally, like, like am I liked? Do I, what do other people think of me? Do I, do I even like myself? Who's that old guy in the mirror? When did I start shaving my dad's face? Like, when did this happen? <laughs> Troubled hearts, man. There's this commercial on TV. I like it. It's catch line is this, don't make your future you hate you. Have you guys seen that? Am I going to have enough money to retire? Is my future me going to hate me? Like all kinds of things. Am I happy? How's my health? Will I get better? Do I have real friends? Why are all Chicago sports teams constantly bad at the same time? <laughs> Anxiety. What about God? Does he see does he care? Does he love? Lots of things trouble our hearts. Some definitions. Fear. Just reading Merriam-Webster, this isn't that tough. It's an unpleasant and often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. Fear is actually a defense mechanism. It keeps us out of trouble. It keeps us out of danger. Fear is helping us maintain a proper relationship to the fear source. If I'm scared, I'm going to fall off the stage. If that's causing anxiety, I stand a little bit far from the edge. If there's a bear out on my deck, I stay in the house. Proper relationship to the fear source. Anxiety is a little bit different. Related to fear, but maybe a little more advanced. It's inner turmoil. It's a fear that grips us that we cannot shake it. David Barlow, in a book he wrote called Anxiety and Its Disorders, tries to cut a line between fear and anxiety. He says, in general, fear is seen as a reaction to a specific observable danger, while anxiety is seen as a diffuse, a kind of unfocused, objectless, future-orientated fear. The line between fear and anxiety is blurry. It's not exact. But be it fear or anxiety, we are called to manage our response. Otherwise, it can cripple us. And while fear is not sin of itself, it has the ability to lead us to sin and to some very dark places. So here's a question. What are the effects of anxiety? I would argue this. Anxiety is a thief. It robs me of my peace. It robs me of my voice. I'm fearful to communicate. I'm fearful of rejection. It robs me of my joy, my ability to resolve conflict, my ability to receive correction, my willingness to be fully known, to live in community with other believers. Honestly, it's with this being 2024, I would argue that fear and anxiety robs us of our leaders. Bert Nannis wrote a book called Visionary Leadership, and in it he says, Our nation totters on the brink of ruin because leaders, fearful of doing the wrong thing, do nothing. And one of the problems that we have when we're struggling with fear and anxiety is the world doesn't stop for our concerns. You have to keep functioning, man. The, the kids got to be fed. They got to get to school. The job's got to get done. You've got to continue to function. But in the middle of it, you've got this in the background weight that you are carrying and it is difficult to function. It's interesting. 
There's a book that's published. It's kind of updated maybe every 10 years or so. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Manual of Mental Disorders. It's known as DSM-5 if you're in counseling circles. If you're not in counseling circles, you can order it online. Really great read. Every mental disorder that you could possibly have, the odds of you getting through the entire book and not finding yourself a remote. Okay, but as it relates to just anxiety disorders, put up that list. That's just a partial list of anxiety disorders that you can be diagnosed with. And I'm not just saying worry or anxiety that you sometimes deal with. A disorder means by definition that it interferes with your daily activities such as job performance, schoolwork, and relationships. Get that list off. It's depressing. Okay, so, so how are we doing as a country? One in five adults in our country suffer from an anxiety disorder. It affects their ability to function through daily life. One in five adults, one in three adolescents, one in three. I don't think you can make an argument that our country is winning the battle. Just one more stat, that if you take childbirth out of the equation, mood disorders such as anxiety and depression drive most hospitalizations for Americans under the age of 45. What's the number one reason that people are hospitalized in America outside of childbirth under the age of 45? It's anxiety. It's depression. What are the causes of depression or anxiety? Sometimes it can be medical or mental illness. Absolutely no doubt. Medical or mental illness can cause anxiety. Addictions can cause anxiety. The side effects being paranoia and dread, fear and anxiety. Trauma can cause anxiety. I'm sure what happened at a parade in Kansas City caused some fear, caused some anxiety. Uh, here, here's the source. Social media, Facebook, X, TikTok, all of these social media feeds. There's a reason they call them feeds. They feed your anxiety. And can I just suggest one more cause? Sin. Sin can cause anxiety. Not, not, not talked about in the press very much, but sin done to you and sin that you have committed. I don't think it would be a hard argument for me to win that if you were coming across the bridge this morning at 65 and a 40, theoretically, and you were to see a police officer parked, there's a little hit of anxiety there little hit of fear. You're doing what you shouldn't do. If you're embezzling from your workplace, I'm sure that's creating a little bit of anxiety. If you're living behind a mask, if you have duplicity, if you have hidden sin, I'm telling you what, that leads to a lot of anxiety and fear. If sin has been committed against you, trauma, abuse, that can also lead to anxiety and fear. But here's the good news of all of the causes of anxiety, worry, and fear. I would say the most prominent is sin, and the good news is we can deal with that. If it's medical, Ill, if it's medical or mental illness, that gets a little wonky on how you're going to treat it. Sin, we have clear direction on how to deal with the anxiety and fear caused by our sin. How do we respond to, to anxiety? How do we respond to fear? Well, the most typical response in our country is medication. And hear me, I'm not against medication. Medication is effective. It, it deals with the symptoms. 
The problem is it doesn't necessarily get to the cause. That's a partial list of prescription medicines in our country that people in this room and throughout our community are on. And most people that are dealing with severe anxiety to the point of disorder are on multiple medicines. Yes, they can provide relief to the symptoms, but like an aspirin can help you with your headache if the core issue is a brain tumor. You're just dealing with the symptoms. You're not getting to the core causes. Other things that we do, again, get that, yeah, depressing, get that off, okay? Uh, another thing that we do is therapy. We can learn coping mechanisms. We can get to root causes of our anxiety. I'm not against therapy. Therapy definitely has its place. But the issue with therapy is this. It's in vogue in our society to go talk about your fears, talk about your anxieties. There used to be a little bit of a stigma to that. Not today. It is in vogue. The caution is this. Counsel from God's word is not in vogue. Doing what God's word says is not in vogue. Here's a third way that people treat their anxiety. They go through lifestyle changes. If social media is causing it, take a sabbatical from social media. If you're dealing with health issues or physical issues that are leading to your anxiety, change your lifestyle. Start to exercise. Maybe diet a little bit. It's interesting. I went back and kind of looked at the fourth quarter of last year and my diet. One of the things that I learned is over 90% of my fluid intake was either Coke Zero or coffee. Now, if you guys notice that I can be a little intense with my personality, how do you think all that caffeine is affecting me? Okay, I'm, I'm a little edgy out there, I'm not going to lie. So, so you change diet. I cut out the Coke Zero, not the coffee. That would be crazy. Okay, there's limits. There's, you know, there's no Pilates going on in my life. I, I'm taking it gradually. But the Coke Zero's gone. I've been drinking this thing called water. Um, in December, best I can remember, I had one bottle of water. That's very, very typical for me. I had like two this morning. Not plain water. That's crazy. I've been drinking like flavored water. It's awesome. Okay. Diet, therapy, medication. Can I suggest just maybe one more thing we should try as it relates to our anxiety and our worry and our troubled hearts? Maybe we should listen to what Jesus has to say. Hey, I made it to my notes if you're keeping them. Here's the first thing. A command, not a suggestion. Jesus' first words are this. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's a command. It's stated in the imperative. Every time that we struggle with worry and anxiety, I would say this, anxiety is the intersection where, where fear and faith collide. Every time we get to the point where we begin to struggle with anxiety, understand that this is a test of our faith and it is a test of our obedience. This is communicated throughout the Bible. Let me give you a couple Old Testament references to reinforce it. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, that's a command, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you, for I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Three chapters later, Isaiah, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. 
your Savior. I don't think when he's talking about going through the waters and the fire, those are literal rivers and flames. He's saying, when you go through the trials and difficulties of life, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be with you. And by the way, God's not just with us. He's experienced them. Jesus has gone through every trial that we can face, yet without sin, because he promises us that with every trial or temptation, he has provided a way of escape. In the New Testament, the most repeated command by Jesus himself is dealing with anxiety. He says it different ways. Sometimes it's fear not. Other times he says, do not be anxious. In John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Always a command, always in the imperative. This is what you must do. In Matthew 6, verse 25, the words of Jesus, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Verse 27, and, when, and which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? You're not adding hours to your life with anxiety. Actually, the opposite argument can be made medically. Shortening your life. 31, Matthew 6, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And some of you, as I read that last verse, don't be anxious about tomorrow. That's going to have its own problems. All of a sudden you're like, Oh, now I'm anxious about tomorrow too. Because it's just the way that we're wired. Jesus recognized that we would have struggles with troubled hearts. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Help me to make sure that I understand what this text is saying. If it says that I cannot be anxious about anything, but with everything through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, what is not included in Anything and everything, nothing, all of our fears. And then we've got this promise that follows. It says, in the peace of God. Anybody for some peace? Yeah, I, I vote for peace. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5, verse 7 there's a verse many of you are familiar with that says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The problem is that's the second half of a sentence that starts the verse before. It says this, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humble and anxieties are connected. You might not make that natural connection, but let me help you. Part of being humble is saying, I can't do this on my own. Just a visual for you. What's the middle letter in the word anxiety? I. What's the middle letter in the word pride? I. When we find ourselves in a position where we're saying, I'm going to handle this on my own. I don't need any help. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I, I, I. Or the opposite of that. I don't know how I'm going to get through this ordeal. I don't know how I'm going to make it till tomorrow or the end of the week. When our focus is solely on ourselves, man, anxiety and fear, they follow that. Humble yourselves. Cast your cares. Why, why, why would you do that? Why would you cast your cares on Jesus? Well, because he cares for you.
The reason I've often preached on anxiety is because the Bible says so much on this topic. And the Bible doesn't just talk about it. Here's the good news for this morning. It gives us a remedy. Here's the big idea. Again, if you're keeping notes, when God is magnified, fear is gone. When God is magnified, fear is gone. So the, the imperative, the command is, let not your heart be troubled or fear not. The next question that should follow that in your mind, how? How do I do that? How do I stop worrying? Because I worry all the time. How do I offload the anxiety? What well, well, Cal said last week, I was listening to him preach, and he says, the wonderful thing about the Bible and about Jesus is he never gives you a command that he doesn't explain how to fulfill the command. He does it through his words and his teaching, but he also does it by his example. So how do we obey? Well, back to the text. A lot of deep, insightful work this week. Let not your hearts be troubled. Here's point one. How do we do that? Believe in God. Where does he get his stuff? It's kind of right there, verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. That idea of believe, to accept, to regard his true, it is a conviction that leads to a response, an action, a way of life. I would argue that the opposite is true. Let not your hearts be troubled. If you don't believe in God, I don't know how to get rid of your troubled hearts. I don't know how to do it. One of the blessings that we have in this church is, is I'm friends and I know several people in this church that are involved in law enforcement. We've got several judges that attend our church. We've got a multitude of police officers from all over Western Michigan that attend our church. And those are guys that I like to check in on, have coffee with. I've got a couple of judges in my small group and I'm constantly asking them, how are you doing? How's things going? Because one of the things that I recognize is, be it a judge or be it law enforcement or there's careers, there's professions, there's jobs that make you see things going on in our community that most of us would rather believe aren't there. And these guys are faced with pressures and stresses and realities that we tend to ignore. And I was sitting having coffee with one of the police officers just in the last couple of weeks, I go like, how are you doing? He goes, listen, I'm doing great, but I have no idea how I do it without my faith. I don't know how guys do it without their faith. You can literally look around our police office and you can nearly pick out the Christians and the non-Christians by how their marriages are going and how they're dealing with the things that we have to deal with. Believe in God. If you do not believe in God, you have to embrace this idea that our entire system is birthed out of randomness, that... It lacks purpose. If that's the case, there's no ultimate justice. There's no life after death. Ultimately, if you do not believe in God, if you deny the existence of God, life has no meaning. It's pointless. There was a man by the name of Carl Sagan. Most of you are too young to remember, but he was a very, very well-known evolutionist and astronomer, kind of an expert on extraterrestrial life back at the end of last century. And, and in his last interview before he died, a man by the name of Ted, Ted Koppel interviewed him, and he asked Carl Sagan this question, do you, have, do you have any closing remarks or words of wisdom that you would like to share with the Earth's people? What a weird way to say that, Ted. But he was kind of an ET expert, extraterrestrial. So listen to Carl Sagan's answer. He answered, he said, parting shot, last words. We live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star that is one of 400 billion other stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy. 
which is one of billions of other galaxies, which makes up a universe, which may be one of a very large number, perhaps an infinite number of other universes. This is a perspective on human life and our culture that is well worth pondering. I don't want to ponder that. It's depressing, like past the Xanax. How do you deal with that? Without God, I don't know how you solve the problem of a troubled heart. To deny the existence of God, you have to embrace the absurd. You have to believe that nobody times nothing plus time equals everything. You have to believe in design without a designer, randomness, randomness producing incredible fine-tuning, non-life producing life. Sir George, or George Sim Johnson, he wrote a book called Did Darwin Get It Right? Catholics and the Theory of Evolution. He says this, he says, human DNA contains more organized information than the Encyclop Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, for those of you under 30, an encyclopedia is a book with a lot of words, okay? There's actually volumes. They used to sit on your shelf. You'd look at them. You'd learn stuff. It's like the internet before the internet. That seems like, okay, I had to take a minute. Old quote, okay? More organized information than the Encyclopedia Britannica. If the full text of the Encyclopedia were to arrive in computer code from outer space, most people would regard this as proof of an existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. But when seen in nature, it is explained as the workings of random forces. To deny the existence of God, to say that you do not believe in God, Psalm 19, 1 says, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Romans 1 says, God can be clearly observed through creation so that we are without excuse. But we just don't have creation and nature. He's also giving us uh, not just general revelation, but specific, special revelation, his word. And in the Bible, we learn that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal, wise, good, trustworthy, truthful, holy, sovereign, and that he loves us. You have a troubled heart this morning. Jesus' first counsel is believe in God. Do you really believe that about God? Do you believe that what you believe about God is really real? When you're faced with a fear or anxiety, where do you let your mind go? Jesus is saying this, when anxiety strikes, first start here, believe in God. He doesn't stop there. Believe in God, believe also in me. Point two, believe in God, believe in Jesus. Man, we're almost through verse one. We are flying now, aren't we? Just two chapters earlier in John 12, 45, Jesus says this. He says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Hebrews 1 will say that Jesus is the exact replica of God the Father. Just go down a couple verses in John 14. Look at verse 8. Philip says to Jesus, he says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have you been with me so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So we believe that there is a God, but then believing in Jesus It's revolutionary. There's not just a God somewhere out there that cannot be known. Jesus is God with us. We've been able to observe him, to watch him, to study him, to understand who God is. 
Colossians 3, verse 1 says, if you've been raised with Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, seek... Well, hold on, I'm skipping. That's bad. That would have been a spoiler alert. Can I take you to 1 Peter 2, 24? It says this about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There's not just a God out there. There's a God that came not just to us but for us. Jesus didn't die on a cross 2,000 years ago. He died on a cross for us. How were we connected to that? He bore our sins on his body. He was our substitutionary atonement. It was Jesus in our place. He reconciled us to God the Father. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. This isn't just believing in God. It's believing in Jesus, what he accomplished and that he rose again. Today, 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What's Jesus doing right now? He's your defense, Lord, before God the Father, and every time you fall short, he's saying, he's pardoned. I've endured the wrath and the penalty for his sin. He's mine. If you were to go back to DSM-5 and look at all the anxiety disorders, I'm not saying they're not true. I'm just saying every one of them now has a label. You have to be diagnosed. You're given a condition. And the thing about labels is they're powerful. Once somebody tells you that you have this label, that's a thing that's very, very hard to shake. What Jesus is saying in John 14 to his disciples, to the followers of Jesus, is, hey, you want to know something? You have a label. Believe in God, believe in me. And if you believe in me, do you know what that means? You're a child of the king. You've been adopted into the family of God. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. These are the labels that need to fill our minds. These are the things that we set our minds on that when anxiety comes our way, we have to remind ourselves of what's really real. Believe in God, believe in Jesus. Next, from the text, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Third thing, eyes on heaven goes on in verse 3, Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Colossians 3, verse 1, we're to the spoiler part. Now that you've been raised with Christ, set your, or seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of this earth. We, we need to remember who we are. This isn't our home. Life is short. It's a vapor. It goes by like this. Heaven is our real home. We're just strangers, aliens, and travelers through this journey. Our reality is not contained by the brokenness of our world and of our universe. Our reality is that we have a home with Jesus. He tells the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. Just trying to remember, Genesis 1, how many days did it take God to create? Wow, nine's a little sleepy today. How many days did God create the world in? Six. Okay. Do you believe that? Do you believe he really did it in six days? Why six days? 
I would argue that he was pacing himself. His feet were up. He could have created it in an instant. What's Jesus been doing the last 2,000 years, according to what he just told the disciples? Preparing a place for us. I don't think I'm going to be disappointed. I think he does pretty good work. We're given glimpses of heaven from the Old Testament and the New Testament. I could take you to Revelation 20, 21, where it describes the new Jerusalem. I'd just like you to consider the first words from Jesus' first sermon. There's a lot of descriptors about heaven in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in heart, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To those who mourn, you'll be comforted. Heaven is a place of comfort. For those who are meek, you shall inherit the earth. You shall inherit the earth. I don't think heaven is up there far away somewhere. I think at least for the millennium and maybe for inhabiting property, we're going to be inhabitants of this earth. We're going to have jobs. We're going to have roles. We're going to have things to do. There's places I'm not going to get to in this lifetime on this earth that I want to see. It's okay. I'm going to get there in heaven. It's going to be way better. I might not get to play Augusta in this lifetime. I'm going to get to it in heaven. Some of you are like, is there golf in heaven? Absolutely. That's just definitive. It's just logical. People wonder about heaven. Are pets in heaven? Some things that are clear, man. Dogs, yes, cats, no. It's just clear, right? <laughs> Back to the Beatitudes, some real descriptors. Um, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be satisfied. They will receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called the sons of God. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Don't lose sight of what's real. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your inheritance. When our perspective is on God, is on Jesus and what he's done for us and what Jesus is currently doing and preparing for us right now, I'm telling you that puts our fears and our worries in a proper perspective. So three points. Believe in God, believe in Jesus, believe in heaven. You're saying, David, you don't understand my anxiety. That's way too simple. Those are Bible school answers. This is a lame message. Hey, good news, you're not alone. Thomas was in the same spot. Look at verse 5. Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? In essence, what Thomas is saying is he goes, Jesus, what you just gave us isn't enough. We need more. Believe in God, believe in Jesus, believe in heaven. We need more. Our hearts are troubled today. And what Thomas just did, I don't think he did it intentionally, but John 14, 6 is one of the best verses in the entire New Testament. He just put the ball on the tee for Jesus to answer three questions that were troubling the disciples' hearts. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Here's the first thing that was on their minds. Hey, will I make it home? And Jesus says, I'm the way. I've got this. And by the way, he didn't say he was a path or a way. He said that I am the way, the only way. Percentage of people that make it home, that get to heaven without Jesus being their way, zero. You are saved through your faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And though that might be unpopular, for sure it's biblical. 
And Jesus says, I understand that in this life, you're going to have some troubled hearts. There's going to be some real worries and real cares, but cast your anxieties on me because I care for you and I'm the one that can get you home. Here's a second question. How can I be sure? Jesus says, not only am I the way, I'm the truth. What more would Jesus have to do for you to earn your trust? How has Jesus failed you as a friend? What promise has Jesus made that he has not kept? What has the world offered you that is proven to be better for your soul than Jesus? He can be trusted. He is truth. And then finally, will I be satisfied? I think the more you study your Bible, the more you study the claims of Christianity, the better you understand the works and claims of Jesus Christ, the more beautiful the gospel becomes. Don't trust me, study it for yourself. Throughout history, the Bible has been mocked, it's been ridiculed, it's been attacked, it's been banned, and yet it remains steadfast in its claims, unchallenged in its transformative power. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That is our reality. And listen, our world's full of brokenness and things that capture and trouble our hearts. Believe in God, believe in Jesus. Eyes on heaven. Listen. Anxiety is like a prison. When you are consumed with worry and fear, it feels like you're in shackles and you will never get out. And there are a lot of remedies that our world will throw at you to deal with your troubled hearts. I'm going to trust the words of Jesus because I want to be set free. Father, we thank you for your word. Not complex. Dealing with real issues real solutions. Father, give us the courage to trust you. It's in your name, our Savior, our King. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.